his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. President Joe Biden recently held his first call with China's President Xi Jinping, with President Biden touching on human rights abuses against the Uyghurs, while President Xi insisted that Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and Taiwan are internal matters. Will confrontation or cooperation Mark Biden's relationship with China. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the impact of new U.S. leadership in the China equation is Ankit Panda, a Stanton senior fellow in the nuclear policy program Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and author of Kim Jong-un and the Bomb. Ankit, good to have you back on the crisis next door. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Ankit, Joe Biden got a lot on his plate after taking over in the Oval Office for Donald Trump, and near the top of his to-do list is dealing with China. How would you describe the state of U.S.-China relations following four years of Trump? So I think one of the few areas and an important area in which we're seeing continuity between the two administrations on foreign policy is China. Um, and of course, you know there are exceptions here. For instance, the Biden administration is very unlikely to continue the Trump administration's trade policy. But certainly I think as we saw from not only President Biden's first phone call with Xi Jinping, but um, Secretary of State Tony Blinken's call with Chinese State Counselor Yang Jiechi, the Biden team is not shying away from raising the uncomfortable issues that now are central to US-China relations. And fundamentally, they see China as a competitor, which is quite different also from the Obama administration. So I think we will see the Biden administration fundamentally have a much more difficult competitive relationship with China uh, than the last time we saw a Democratic president in office. And much of the relationship with Trump and China really focused on trade. And we had various trade pacts reached between the Trump and Jinping administrations. This time, it seems like the military is a little higher up in the equation. And President Biden did have the Pentagon work on a review of U.S. strategy toward China. And there is a 15 person China task force that's being used to counter Chinese efforts. How would you look at that? And is that the focus where President Biden needs to go in figuring out the military relationship vis-a-vis China and the United States? Well, it's an interesting question because the Biden administration came into office, you know, fundamentally messaging that uh, diplomacy will be put front and center in the um, in the implementation of American foreign policy. And that's certainly true for China still, I think. Um, it is true that we did see an early announcement from the Department of Defense regarding a new task force. My understanding of that task force ambit is that it's largely going to focus on 
internal DOD matters uh, insofar as China is concerned. So basically taking stock of where things stand after four years of the Trump administration, where procurement acquisitions, internal staffing um, priorities need to be. Meanwhile, I think we'll see a much broader effort across the administration, beginning with the National Security Council, where we have a new um, and particularly empowered uh, Indo-Pacific coordinator uh, to deal with uh, not only China policy, but a general US strategy for the Asian region, uh, tackle with a lot of the broader economic, political, diplomatic, and strategic questions that come in um, preparing for at least four years of a competitive relationship with China. Um, but certainly I think the efforts that are underway at DOD uh, will be an important part of that component. Uh, but I think it does bear stating that the Biden administration fundamentally seems more inclined to place diplomacy at the center of its efforts. And that means reassuring allies in the region. It means assuring non-aligned countries that they don't necessarily need to choose between the United States and China, but that fundamentally, if they do decide to maintain a positive relationship with the United States, that their interests will be better served. It, it, there has been a lot of concern about Chinese development of various weapons, hypersonic missiles, space weapons, advances in artificial intelligence. Are these legitimate concerns that China is gaining that technological advantage over the U.S. military? Well, I wouldn't know. I, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say that the Chinese are about to seize the technological um, lead, so to speak, from the United States. Uh, both countries are competing across many categories of weapon systems. There are some areas where China uh, appears to be pulling ahead, uh, for instance, um, Chinese advancements in things like uh, quantum computing, quantum communications tend to be uh, a little bit further ahead than uh, at least the militarized applications here in the United States. Uh, but on other technologies, uh, look, I mean, China can do certain things and there's no, there's no particular reason that the United States needs to mirror image Chinese capabilities to compete. In fact, th the way in which the United States should go about building a strategy for China is first identifying the kinds of a, scenarios that we'd like to deter. Uh, so in the United States, a lot of the conversation right now focuses on Taiwan straight contingencies. Chinese pressure on Taiwan has been increasing under Xi Jinping. Uh, President Xi has made no secret of his intention to unify um, with Taiwan by force if he feels that Taiwan is moving towards independence. So this is a particular situation that has um, seized a lot of attention insofar as planning is concerned. Uh, but in terms of specific technical prescriptions, you know, I tend to think the United States can still compete. Uh, and under, under the Biden administration, I think we are seeing an effort to uh, continue what under the Obama administration was identified as this so-called third offset strategy for the United States, because it might not be able to compete numerically with Russia or China, uh, especially China, which uh, in the Indo-Pacific will maintain a numerical advantage over, let's say, the U.S. Navy with simply more ships and assets. Uh, so the way the United States identified to compete there is to simply lead on technology and make sure that we are at the cutting edge. And those efforts, I think, very much uh, remain on track. The Taiwan question has been around for decades. It, do you feel that China is even remotely considering a cross-strait invasion of Taiwan? Uh, obviously, it would invite a U.S. response. Is it really a fear that China would actually do something so drastic? Well, I mean, look, in the 1990s, uh, the Chinese fired missiles into the Taiwan Strait uh, over, over concerns that then president of Taiwan was unacceptably um, sort of deferential to the ambiguities that exist across the Taiwan Strait regarding the status of the two countries. Uh, under Biden, I think, you know, these concerns are, again, real. They've sort of been at the forefront. Uh, and the Chinese military, you know, again, makes no secret of this. It's in every strategic document um, or white paper that they release. They talk about Taiwan contingencies. Uh, they're very open about the fact that this is one of their top envisaged warfighting scenarios. That said, is, is China going to invade Taiwan tomorrow? Probably not. I mean, the, the conditions on the Taiwan Strait right now, uh, even as 
pressure on Taiwan is increasing, um, there are simply too many um, costs associated here for China. It's not something that would be risk-free for China to undertake uh, this sort of attack uh, on Taiwan. Um, but um, you know, this does require active efforts at deterrence across the Taiwan Strait. If, if we don't want China to carry out such an invasion, we have to focus on the capabilities, the relationships, the assurance, uh, not only for Taiwan, but, uh, but other allies in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, to ensure that we continue to create the conditions where China will calculate that it's um, the benefits of not carrying out such an invasion outweigh the costs. Um, so that's where we are today. Uh, I'm not essentially anticipating uh, any kind of Chinese action in the near term, um, but certainly I think under the Biden team, um, there will be a sustained effort at continuing some of the Trump administration's more positive moves towards Taiwan, ensuring in particular that the US, um, that the US relationship with Taiwan does not become a function of the US relationship with China, and it can be something that exists for its own benefit and on its own merits. Another potential area of conflict has been the South China Sea, where China has made great expansion over recent years. Uh, there have been a number of Asian countries in that sphere that were U.S. allies for a long time, then started to pull away from the U.S. Now it seems like they're coming back a little bit. There was a survey conducted by Singapore's ISES Yusuf Ishak Institute that found that there were more of those countries that were moving towards the United States rather than China. It said that China's predominant economic and political influence in the region has created more awe than affection. Could Biden win over more of those Asian nations that have had to deal with China's expansion in the South China Sea? And how would that help the U.S. in its relations with China? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes the Trump administration made was uh, not paying due attention to Southeast Asia, which is a critical, um, not only geographic linchpin uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, sort of sitting between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, but uh, the 10 countries uh, that comprise the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, for instance, have always looked for the United States to be a visible presence in the region. And the, and the administration simply didn't follow through in the way that the Obama administration did, for instance, by attending the East Asia Summit and summitry with ASEAN leaders. Um, for President Trump, this really wasn't a priority. He was much more interested in dealing at the great power level, uh, be that with Russia or China um, or for uh, European partners, for instance. Uh, but for the Biden team, I think, you know, they, they very much recognize that Southeast Asia will need to be a big part of any future um, U.S. approach to competition with China. Uh, so this will be an important component. Uh, U.S. treaty allies, for instance, uh, Thailand and the Philippines have received a lot of attention. Uh, partners like Singapore with the United States has important uh, facilities for naval operations are also going to receive uh, due attention. Of course, um, there has been a lot of discussion in recent weeks over, uh, over Myanmar, given the coup there. Uh, so that, too, I think will um, ensure that the Biden team is thinking more carefully about geopolitical competition. Uh, now, you mentioned the South China Sea. Um, the, the fundamental U.S. interest in the South China Sea has really been unchanged since the Obama administration, which is the freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation, freedom of overflight. We want our naval vessels and commercial tankers um, and uh, shipping vessels to basically have free maneuver through these international waters. It is true that China has built artificial islands and militarized them. Um, but ultimately, I think the Biden team recognizes, just like the Trump team did, that you can't really roll that back. It's what's called sort of a fait accompli in international affairs that the Chinese have asserted um, and, and created new facts on the ground in the South China Sea. But um, the administration will have to ensure that relations between China and certain Southeast Asian states here, I'm particularly thinking of Vietnam, don't spiral out of control uh, in, in the near future and uh, lead to a potential conflict in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. 
You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and I'm talking about President Biden's China strategy with Ankit Panda, a Stanton senior fellow in the nuclear policy program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's estimated that there are three million Uyghurs in concentration camps in China, and this was a big focus of President Biden's call with Xi Jinping. What can Biden or the U.S. or the world do about the Uyghurs? Is it possible for a resettlement of the Uyghurs somewhere else so they could live their lives without the attention that they're getting from Beijing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so, the, you know, the first step here is accurately diagnosing the problem and calling it out. Uh, and, the, and the Trump administration certainly did that. Um, you know, we have no shortage of statements from the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, for instance, calling out China's practices. But there was a sense that, you know, human rights, uh, and in particular, the situation in Xinjiang, where China is carrying out cultural genocide, um, was being used as a cudgel of sorts against the Chinese Communist Party and President Xi Jinping. Now, the Biden team, I think, is aware of not coming off in this way, but certainly I think they've also made a very public statement that, you know, they will be placing values again at the center of American foreign policy. That will mean fundamentally um, recognizing that any sort of cooperative relationship with China uh, will be a cooperative relationship that ultimately will be with the regime that is carrying out these things uh, in Xinjiang. Now you asked a little bit about what can be done in practice. There, I think things are a lot more difficult. I mean, there is of course, wisdom and benefit to be had in building international coalitions around this issue, ensuring, for instance, that American businesses don't source materials um, created with forced labor in Xinjiang. And and many of these efforts are already underway. Uh, The previous administration uh, already began leveraging targeted sanctions against um, senior Chinese Communist Party officials um, that were directly implicated in setting up um, the, the prison camp system that we currently see in Xinjiang. Short of that though, can the Biden administration compel or force China's hand on its internal practices in Xinjiang? Um, Unfortunately, I don't think the answer to that is yes. And I think um, what that means ultimately is the administration will have to decide if and when it does decide to cooperate with China, let's say on things like climate change, um, to what extent will it allow um, these broader issues, uh, Xinjiang, Taiwan, um, the fate of Tibet, of uh, Hong Kong, where there's a separate crackdown, um, how far will allow these issues to override the broader agenda? Uh, and I think the United States will begin to see, um, we're already seeing civil society uh, across the country uh, wake up to the nature of the Chinese Communist Party regime, uh, not just over what's happening in Xinjiang, but also over the Communist Party's attempts to export authoritarianism overseas. Uh, I think we saw a big wake-up call a couple of years ago when China attempted to uh, you know, crack down on the general manager of the Houston Rockets. I think people began to realize uh, that you know uh, the influence of the Chinese Communist Party is in many ways permeating and influencing many aspects of life that Americans had had thought to be sort of sealed off from this sort of influence. Uh, So I think all of these factors will um, fundamentally orient the Biden administration towards a much more confrontational approach uh, um, where China is concerned. It's very interesting. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation recently met, and they did not say anything in regards to the Uyghurs and China's policies with the Uyghurs. Uh, You've got Pakistan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia as members of that. Uh, Is this a result of China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, where simply it's able to buy off those governments and avoid any criticism of its handling of its Uyghur population? Well, I think I think that's part of the story. I mean, in general, a lot of these countries will only comment on the internal affairs of other states when it's politically suitable or diplomatically suitable. And in the case of China, it's, it's simply not. They have too much to gain from 
maintaining a positive diplomatic rapport. It's not just economics. It's not just trade. A lot of these countries see China as an important um, strategic partner at the global level. Many of them buy arms from China. Uh, so these factors, again, I think weigh on these decisions. Um, broadly speaking, though, the Belt and Road Initiative um, has been an important part of China's um, bid to spread its influence uh, in the Asian region and, and more broadly globally. So this is, again, an important factor. The trade issue um, is, is bigger than the OIC, right? I mean, the Europeans, uh, last year, China was Europe's biggest trading partner, and that's weighing on how a lot of European capitals are thinking about the extent to which uh, you know, they're willing to go out of their way to uh, take a stand with the United States, for instance, on issues um, not only limited to Xinjiang, but other issues on the US-China agenda. So all of these factors, I think, uh, combine to make for a particularly difficult decision for many governments when it comes to uh, calling out and criticizing China on these issues. Ankit, you mentioned Hong Kong, and we've seen Beijing's crackdown in the pro-democracy movement over the past couple of years. And now Beijing is overhauling Hong Kong's education system with the patriotic education. And a lot of people call it brainwashing. Is that what this is? Well, look, I mean, I think uh, Hong Kong's special status after 1997, uh, that was meant to be respected uh, for a period of 50 years, that that ship has sailed. Hong Kong today is effectively as good as just any other city in China. Uh, and of course, at the time of the handover, Hong Kong represented a significantly larger proportion of China's GDP than it does today. So I think the Communist Party has recognized that even if what they're doing in Hong Kong spooks investors, uh, expatriates, uh, causes an outflux of um, multinational companies, for instance, that no longer see the legal and regulatory environment that they had come to expect uh, obtain in Hong Kong, uh, the benefits will ultimately be worth it because, uh, as, as, as the Communist Party says, its core interests when it comes to things like territorial integrity are paramount. Uh, so everything that's been going on in Hong Kong uh, since 2019, since the passage of the national security legislation, um, is ultimately, I think, being done with, with that goal in mind. So yes, I would say the education um, reform that we're unfortunately seeing in the city uh, is just another nail in the coffin here. And there have been a lot of calls over the past couple of years of Hong Kong and pro-democracy supporters for the U.S. to get more involved against China in this. But again, are President Biden's hands tied in this case? Is there much that he can do to help out the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong? Well, again, I mean, he's, he's not going to be able to compel uh, the Chinese Communist Party's behavior in Hong Kong. Uh, there are steps that the United States can still take, uh, for instance, um, allowing for pro-democracy activists to seek asylum in the United States. The Biden administration has already expanded um, the number of planned refugee acceptances in the United States uh, tenfold from the Trump uh, era limits. And some of that will hopefully uh, go not only to um, folks fleeing Hong Kong that have reason to fear for persecution at the hands of the Communist Party, but from other parts of China as well. Uh, so that's going to be a big part of this. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, the biggest lesson I think the Biden team is taking away from Hong Kong, and a lot of Americans are, is, is what it suggests for the future of um, Taiwan, for instance, which very much, I think, now, given the experience in Hong Kong, will be much more likely to reject any notion of peaceful unification with China, voluntarily unifying the China under any kind of compromise deal where, let's say, Taiwan would be allowed to maintain its autonomy. Uh, given what the Communist Party has done in Hong Kong, I simply think those kinds of assurances just won't be credible if they ever were in the past. One final area I wanted to touch on with you, Ankit, is uh, regarding the media and freedom of speech and, and reporting when it comes to Chinese matters. Uh, China recently banned the BBC after its reporting of uh, the Uyghur situation. 
And there have been U.S. and other foreign correspondents unable to get visas renewed in China. And there's been ongoing harassment of foreign correspondents in China. How important is that to get foreign correspondents back into China and and developing a a communication between uh, China and the U.S. and other countries where there could be more understanding between those countries? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the first thing I'll say here is I think China has in many ways underestimated the international press in the last few years. I mean, uh, it, back in back in 2017, um, you know, it wasn't the U.S. government. It wasn't Mike Pompeo, uh, who I guess wasn't Secretary of State until 2018, but his predecessor, Rex Tillerson, uh, that was talking about concentration camps in Xinjiang. It was the media, right? We had great reports from AFP, BuzzFeed, um, uh, several other organizations uh, that had conducted on-the-ground reporting testifying to what was happening. Uh, and unfortunately it was in the early phases back then in Xinjiang. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it, it's sort of a straight line from there to the recent decision um, to ban the BBC. Uh, of course, China has never been a particularly favorable environment for international reporting. Um, but I think the extent to which, um, you know, the, the Communist Party is now willing to crack down on organizations like the BBC seen as among the most impartial in the entire world is I think a, worrying omen of, of the general direction of repression under Xi Jinping. I think, uh, you know, there is, of course, an urgency here to get reporters back. We need to have a sense of what is actually happening, not just, uh, you know, in the financial and trade presses uh, that cover um, business developments in, in Shanghai, Shenzhen, and, and Beijing, for instance, but we need to know what's happening in Tibet, in, in Xinjiang. Uh, but the Communist Party, precisely because it is under so much scrutiny over these issues internationally, now sees a strategic impulse to basically deny the outside world as much information as it can um, and from all sources that it can. So I I think, unfortunately, uh, what happened to the BBC is likely to soon spread to the other few news organizations that do manage to maintain foreign staff inside China today. Ankit, one final question. How do you see U.S. relations with China over the next four years with President Biden? Do you see a possible improvement or do you think pretty much status quo? Uh, I actually do think things will get worse before they get better. I mean, uh, the status quo is not stable. Uh, We are heading in a direction of, I think, increased friction between the two countries. I think the Biden team will be smart enough to recognize that precisely because we are heading in the direction of more friction, that there will be an impulse to continue to interact and engage with China. Uh, And that means we'll need to keep military to military dialogues happening so we don't have misunderstandings at sea or in the air in Asia where uh, a miscalculation could lead to conflict, for instance. Um, But broadly speaking, I'm I'm not very optimistic, uh, given the current trajectory. A very sobering analysis, Ankit. President Biden obviously has his hands full. Thank you for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've been joined by Ankit Panda, a Stanton Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. 
Penfield's got great rates for everyone. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of colors starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.